Hey friends, Christine here. I wanted to share a special announcement with you before today's podcast interview begins. Now through November 30th, 2019, I am hosting a 30 book giveaway on my website. The Lord has blessed me with the chance to collaborate with the publishers of almost all the Hope and Help Project guests I've interviewed this year. And the result being three different book bundles of 10 titles each that are going to be delivered to three different winners. I am so grateful for the generosity of the publishers who have agreed to align with my mission of providing gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems. You can enter to win a bundle of your very own by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The giveaway information is at the top of the page and you can click on the button there to find out all about the details. The three winners will be announced on December 1st, 2019. Please help me spread the word about this really incredible giveaway. By doing so, you also help to raise awareness about this podcast, as well as the helpful books that our podcast guests have written. You can also access the giveaway link by scrolling down to the show notes and clicking the link listed there. Thank you so much for your continued support, friends, and enjoy the show. Hey, friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm really glad you're here to join in on today's conversation with Deepak Reju. Today, we'll be talking about Deepak's new book, Pornography, Fighting for Purity, to learn how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the hope and help necessary to overcome the voluntary slavery of pornography addiction. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Deepak Reju is pastor of the Biblical Counseling and Family Ministries at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and the president of the Biblical Counseling Coalition's Board of Directors. He did his theological training at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, earning an MDiv and PhD. Deepak and his wife, Sarah, have been married since 2001 and have five children. He is the author of On Guard, Preventing and Responding to Child Abuse at Church, and The Pastor and Counseling, The Basics of Shepherding Members in Need. Hey there, Deepak. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so delighted to have you on the program. Not only are you the series editor for PNR Publishing's 31 Day Devotional Series, which my audience has been getting acquainted with through other interviews on the show, but you've also contributed to the series with your own title. And so the book is called Pornography, Fighting for Purity. Will you give us some background as to why you wanted to write a book on this particular topic and what it seeks to accomplish? Yeah, it's a great question. I want to help Christians to see how God's Word has relevance to their struggles. Hence, we wrote the entire series in a devotional format. I want to help believers, both men and women, who are struggling with pornography to know that hope comes through the gospel. I want to write something that's short enough that you can add to a quiet time or to a bus ride to work, but meaty enough that it gives you substantial truth and application. And I wanted believers to know that theological truth matters for their struggles, but also that there's really practical steps that flow out of that truth. 
Well, I really think that the book accomplished just that. I was so encouraged just to read your approach with how you were counseling people who do struggle with pornography addiction to really lean into God's word and, and, and really grab hold of the power that can come through the Holy Spirit when they are battling such a, a really, really difficult enslavement. And speaking of that, you actually right out of the gate of the book, help the readers to think biblically about their struggle. And you even reference Ed Welch's term quote, voluntary slavery in order to explain the battle against pornography addiction. So how does this term rightly define the heart of the issue? Yeah, the two words together feel like a paradox, but if you bear with me a moment, let's see if we can put this together. So voluntary, you think in terms of an individual who makes choices to engage in destructive and sinful behaviors. So as image bearers, we take responsibility for our choices. No one thing made us do it. But slavery is a little bit different. It's the experience of destructive and sinful behaviors outside of the control of that individual. So there's bondage to their sin. I think both are true for an addiction. When you combine the two words together and hold them in tension, what you basically see are the building blocks for any addiction. It starts with a temptation and a foolish choice, and then your body gets a jolt of satisfaction, and then a desire is awakened. And then we make that foolish choice when we do that, we're doing it with our mind and our heart and our body that gets entangled and the desires then grow out of proportion. And a Christian grows more and more enslaved. And it moves from one foolish choice to then a carnal pursuit of sin many times to slavery and then finally to death. And you know this because the first time a man or woman looks at pornography, it's, it's scintillating, but it's not addictive. And it's, it's powerful, but it's not enslaving. But if they keep coming back to it after a few months, they go from a place of just simply being foolish to bondage. That's the trajectory of anybody who goes from one simple choice all the way to slavery. Somebody listening to this program may be convinced that their use of pornography is harmless because it's a private matter. They aren't hurting anyone and they believe it isn't having an effect on their work or relationships. Therefore, they really don't even consider themselves enslaved. How have you counseled people with this view in the past? Is engaging with pornography a sin if it doesn't seem to hurt anyone? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the person you're staring at uh, when you're looking at something online is someone son or daughter, and it's a human being who is in such a desperate place, they're getting paid for exposing themselves or having sex on screen. And even worse than that, though, you're staring at an image bearer. So if you think you're not hurting anyone, you've got blinders on, you got to rip the blinders off and go vertical for just a moment. That, that person you're staring at on the screen is someone who God made, someone who God put into this world. So it's offense against God when you use his children for your own selfish means. I've been reading a lot of material on pornography recently, and I came across the definition by John Freeman that I thought captured this real well, the, the dilemma of this. Because I used to define pornography just simply as a disordered desire or a desire that's out of control. But here's what John Freeman said. Lust is a heart hunger in me that denies and disavows those who are made in the image of God, whether it's another man or woman, and reduces them to what I can get out of them to feed and fill my hungry heart right now. This means that by nature, our lusts twist, devour, consume, 
and use others for our benefit. Now you hear his definition and I think, I, I like that because it doesn't just say it's my carnal desires. It's my carnal desires making use of and exploiting and devouring others for my own benefit. That, that puts a whole different twist to this because it does say fundamentally I'm using other people for my own good. And that unto itself, if you think about it, is fundamentally selfish, isn't it? Absolutely. And what a powerful definition. On the other end of the spectrum, however, there may be someone listening who is actually greatly convicted over their pornography use, but they have been searching for how-tos and monitoring software, and they really just can't seem to experience meaningful change no matter how hard they try. You explain in the book that, quote, the natural human tendency is to seek a way out by depending on yourself. Why is behavior modification through fix-it strategies insufficient to deal with this problem? Yeah, there's a heart issue and heart worship behind these sexual cravings and actions. And we live out of the overflow of our hearts. And that's what Matthew 12 and Luke 6 tells us. Out of the overflow of our hearts, we think and we act and we feel and we purpose. So I I can set up a firewall to deny access, which is important. And we want to talk about that. Like it's, it's really important to work at denying access. I can set up filtering and monitoring software. But ultimately, all that does is encase a sexually craved heart. And so what happens when there's a crack in a firewall, what do you see in a porn struggler? They lunge through that crack to look again. And why is that? Because they haven't dealt with the deeper issues that's going on in their hearts. So a a husband, when he gets into a fight with his wife and goes and looks at pornography afterwards, tells me lies that he's wrestling with, like, she doesn't love me, so I need to get affirmation somewhere else, or this is the 10th fight we've had this month, and God's not going to change my marriage. It's hopeless. When you think about that, at that moment, he's not just looking at pornography because of lust. It's, it's much more than that, because there's a war that's erupted in his heart. There's a battle for appreciation and love and affection. He's looking for it in all the wrong places. He has this sense of failure as a husband in that moment, and he's not believing that God can actually change his marriage. So it's much, much more than just fix-it strategies. We've got to get to people's hearts in order to get to the real core of what's going on in there. That makes a lot of sense. In one of the chapters, you share a question that you frequently ask when counseling someone who is struggling. And the question goes like this, do you see yourself fundamentally as a porn struggler or as a child of God. How does the battle against pornography addiction really boil down to an identity issue? And why is this important to recognize as we gird up, so to speak, to fight against it? Well, like any sin that overtakes our life, it begins to define us much more than it should. So we think of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, we can become a slave to sin, but as believers, our fundamental identity is in Christ. So who you are in Christ is the truest and the deepest and most fundamental of our identity. So we want to be, as Apostle Paul tells us, slaves to righteousness, not to sin. So for your listeners, you've got to ask yourself, which one defines you more? When you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking about first? Are you thinking about the images you viewed last night, or are you thinking of the love of Christ? Or when you're walking to work, which defines you more? your sense of shame or your sense of being adopted as a child of God. 
your frequent battle with porn puts it at the forefront of your heart and mind. So you, you don't want to over identify with that sin. And that selfish desire that rages within you, you can let it define you far too much. And the addiction to pornography that plagues you causes confusion and doubts and shame and self-hate that pushes your Christian identity to the background many days. And it makes you revolve around that sin far too much. And it shouldn't be surprising because, you know, when we repeat that sin, doubt about God creeps in. We wrestle with questions like, why is God letting this happen? And why doesn't he change me? And when will he bring this to an end? And as we keep on sinning, we start asking questions about our own salvation, which is some of the saddest parts of this battle. A Christian who one day was doing really well gets to this point of slavery and they start second guessing their own Christian identity because the evidence of their life, because they keep acting out, mounts up. So they start asking themselves, if I'm a Christian, how can I keep doing that? I really appreciated your fierce approach to counseling the reader through this issue. In the book, you use very bold and aggressive language to exhort men and women in being radical when fighting against their sexual sin habits. You even offered some heart-piercing questions for the reader to reflect upon, asking, quote, have you tolerated the sin, coddled it, maybe even welcomed it, and in doing so, continue to give it a chance to hurt your life? What do you mean by someone coddling their pornography addiction, and what would be some steps they could take for radical corrective action? Yeah, there's a way in which a struggler becomes lazy and passive about their addiction, and the vigilance to fight is gone or significantly worn down, and they get so used to the sin, it becomes a normal part of their life. We sin because we get something out of it, so we hold on to the sin. Even worse, we coddle it, which means... Just simply, we indulge it because we want more of it. We hide it because we're ashamed of it, but also because we don't want to give it up. The first radical step to take is to be brutal with cutting off access. If someone's able to keep looking, that means there's a crack in their firewall. And often that means the person's permitted themselves access points. And sometimes in their pride, they think they can handle it. So you lock down your phone or your laptop or your tablet using... What is now actually wonderful tools that are built into these pieces of technology. And I think the next part is really key. It's to give over control to someone else. What I run into, because I have this conversation all the time about access points. What I find is as people keep struggling, they haven't given over control of their devices to someone else. Or they, they keep holding on to these access points because it allows them to keep sitting. And if you have control of the devices on your own, then in a weak moment, you're going to look and you'll continue to look. And I've had to become an expert on literally technology in order to just help people in counseling. You know, in the middle of a session, when they say, I looked again and we talk through it, before we're done with our meeting, I'm going to say, well, let's look at your phone right now and literally open up the general settings, look at restrictions, look at the, just work through the different parts of their phone to make sure it really is locked down as much as possible. Now, access is not the most important step. Like we said earlier, getting to the heart is. But it is, in my mind, the most urgent step. Because if I'm not dealing with an access issue, I leave that struggler to continue stumbling in the week to come. And it, it doesn't make sense then if I really want to get to the deep heart issues but I don't take the time to help them sort through access because then they'll be able to go out and get overwhelmed with the pornography yet again. And that makes it all the more harder to get to their heart. 
But there, there's a couple of more things you just want to say, because access is not it. We mentioned earlier access plus getting to the heart, but a, a more comprehensive st- strategy in dealing with porn would include dealing with the heart issues in that person's inner life, like fantasies and their thought life and idolatry and their disbelief, getting steeped in the word. That's the whole point of doing a devotional like this, helping the struggler to make sure they're getting reconnected with God's word and mining the riches of the word and learning how to go deep into the word, not just like a lot of people do, do a superficial reading of the word and then move on. We need to help people get the kind of help that's available through God's people. So good accountability is going to be a really big help, and bad accountability is only going to hurt us in the process. And we need to make sure people are plugged into a really good church where they're going to hear God's word preached weekly. We want people to be grounded in the gospel. And if they're not connected to a church, they're cutting off the main source of life for them, which is part of God's fundamental plan of us growing in local congregations. We need to see grief over sin and genuine repentance. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leaves no regret. And we know that guilt and shame plagues a believer's life. And this half-hearted repentance I often see is really gets, gets us nowhere. And then faith really is going to be the wind in the sails of a believer's life. There's greater affection for Christ actually will have this expulsive power of pushing out the weaker carnal desires. And that, you know, all the things I just listed, Christine, are just a sampling of things that I would say is a more comprehensive picture of dealing with the fight, not just reducing a person to their sin. I really love that you do take that holistic approach to the issue. And again, you know, I could just go back to any kind of chronic addictive habit or behavior that we're trying to fight against. You know, obviously we're talking specifically about porn addiction today, but so much of what you've mentioned today can be helpful to someone struggling in a variety of different areas. I want to take a quick moment to talk about the topic of discouragement. Now, especially in a battle like this, discouragement is certainly something that strugglers will experience as they train for freedom from pornography addiction. You write, quote, don't be discouraged. In Jesus, you have everything you need for this battle. Now, that may sound like a trite, hyper-spiritualized consolation to some people, but would you explain how the gospel of Jesus Christ really does empower those who are struggling against pornography addiction to find lasting freedom? Yeah, what what a good question yet again. The gospel is the good news that God does have the power to change us. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The power of sin was defeated by the power of God in Christ. So porn strugglers are so far removed from that truth, it can feel cold and distant as their life is overrun by their addiction. But if Jesus really is the centerpiece of all of history, then it's got to matter. It's not just a fact on a page from an old book. It is our hope. You know, most folks who walk in my door have been struggling for a while, and they're weary from the fight, and they need some hope. So Jesus' invitation to the weary soul to come to him first is one of a long line of steps that begin to reshape a struggler's life. So I've come alongside a lot of people in these past few years who've been removed from the struggle, and what helps is to see living examples that shows us the gospel works. I've witnessed godly men and women who have faithfully served in our church, but are now years removed from the struggle, 
struggles that they had when they were younger that were deeply entrenched in pornography. And one thing I've noticed in them is that they consistently have a growing affection and commitment to Christ. Sustained gospel contact day in and day out is the normal rhythm of their life. And the gospels, the air they breathe as they pour over the word and they beg God for mercy. It's their union with Christ and not their own efforts, not this white knuckling approach that so many of us take and trying to get out of the ditches we create. It's their union with Christ that keeps them living by faith and keeps them moving forward. It's not some trite religious phrase. If I just said, hey, Jesus matters, and then didn't say anything more than that, I can see how they'd walk away thinking, well, this is hyper-spiritualized consolation, but this really does matter changing a person's life. As I was reading your book one night, there was a line, and I loved it so much. I underlined this line, and then I had to also, I was so excited about it, I had to read it aloud to my husband. You wrote in a chapter about accountability, quote, good accountability is honest, frequent, local, and tough. Can you offer the listeners some insight about the importance of having good accountability and perhaps suggest some of the things to look for when considering someone to approach? Good accountability is honest, frequent, local, and tough, as you said. So let me just explain each one of those and give you a sense of what I mean by it. Good accountability is honest. So honest conversations are vital for our fight. Like without any honesty, everything else I think is a waste of time. And it doesn't apply for pornography. And applies for all my conversations. So if somebody's hiding, they're not sharing the entire truth. And even worse, if they're lying to me, they're undermining our ability to actually help them. So for accountability work, we've got to be brutally honest. So I say to every person, go to a godly Christian that you trust and take a risk because honesty matters. Give him or her the nitty gritty ugly details of your life and let them see the foulest parts of your heart. Now that's scary because none, none of us wants to be that brutally honest with our lives because we're fearful of rejection. And yet your sin naturally pushes against this, wanting to conceal or deny or hide, but redemption beckons us to be truthful. What does Solomon say? An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. We're at a stage with our girls where if I kiss my wife in front of our kids, which I often do, the girls often scream, ew, or they close their eyes, or they turn away. They just don't understand that a kiss is delightful. And what's Solomon saying? Like, just like a kiss is amazingly delightful, honesty is, uh, is even more delightful than that. It, it, it brings life to a person. Part of the very fabric of what it means to live as a human being is just be able to be honest. So that's the first point, honesty, frequent. It's better to be more frequent than infrequent. Sin daily finds ways to muck up our life, and if we let it go unchecked too long, it's going to make a mess of things. So we need repeated help. Seeing someone who's in a deep struggle just once a month is just not going to cut it. We need somebody in front of us, in our face, regularly, who says, not only, how are you doing, but I love you. What's the battle look like? Where are we at? When am I going to see you at church? What are we doing next? I just need somebody in my life often and a regular part of my life, not somebody who I see occasionally. Local accountability is also important. Often when I ask a person, a man or a woman, how they're doing and who their accountability partner is, 
they'll respond and say something like, so-and-so who was my best friend in college is my accountability partner, and we started this a few years ago. And yet, you know, they went to college in Oklahoma, and now they're working in Washington, D.C., and I'll say to him or her, well, is there anybody you're talking to in our own local church? And sometimes they'll say, oh, well, I've shared it with my small group occasionally. Or they'll say, um, you know, yeah, some people, but so-and-so from college is really my closest accountability partner. And I say to them, well, now you need to get somebody in your own church, somebody who you see regularly, somebody who your life is intertwined with as your accountability partner also. Having someone who can only check on you through technology, email or texting or Skype or FaceTime or Google Chat or all the other forms is, is fine, but in my mind, it's not ideal. God's designed relationships such that the most powerful way to give and receive accountability is through someone who's regularly involved in your life. So you're looking for someone who you go to church with, somebody who you can sit across the table from, somebody who you're sitting next to in church, somebody who you can go out to lunch with, somebody who you can go for a run with, somebody who you can get a hug from, somebody you can laugh together with, somebody you can search the scripture with and pray together. And all this is possible because you're geographically located in the same proximity. So where are we? Honestly, frequent, local, now tough, tough conversations. You know, what's difficult about this is, say, a a struggler often will find another struggler because this is so common and pervasive. And yet another struggler, as kind as they may be and as understanding may be, won't have that kind of edginess I really like to see in an accountability person. An accountability person will serve you well if they're willing to dig in, press into your life, and pull out the roots of your sin. So you, you want to make sure to find someone who's willing to ask the hard and awkward and direct questions. Like, did you masturbate this week? Did you lie to anyone this week? Is there anything you're hiding from me? And if you, if you find someone like that, it'll, it'll feel awkward because they're not asking superficial things. They're willing to be intrusive into your life. But as you get used to that, you come to understand that this is vital for your survival. You don't want superficial conversation because superficial conversations is not going to get you out of a ditch. I know that there are married couples dealing with this problem in their relationship. And so I want to see if you would offer a high level overview of how you counsel couples who are trying to work through a spouse's addiction. What are some of the helpful things that they need to consider as they prepare for the long road ahead? So first, the spouse who's addicted, and usually that's the husband, but that not always needs to pursue the help we mentioned earlier, being brutal with cutting off access, getting into the word, getting good accountability, getting deeply connected to their church, delving into heart issues, expressing general repentance, growing in faith. And we, we said all that earlier. But here's the one thing I want to add when we think about marriage in regards to the struggling spouse. He needs to begin a life of transparency with his spouse that he hasn't done so already. He needs to confess to her what he's done, get guidance from godly friends about what that confession looks like. One of the many signs of repentance is if he's willing to be open and transparent with his spouse. She's going to have to avoid the temptation to be a cop in this situation. She's going to police the situation out of fear of him acting out again. She needs the transparency and access to his devices, but she needs to avoid slipping into the ditch of policing his sins. But, you know, for this victim spouse, there's a few things I want to say. The overall experience of your spouse looking at pornography 
is one of betrayal. There's one of the marriage bed being violated because sex gets at the core of what it means to be married. It cuts right to the heart of who we are as a husband and wife. Sex is not the entire marriage, but it, it's very much a centerpiece of the marriage. So there's a couple of things I want to help the, the spouse who's been hurt by this work towards. And let me just mention three things, forgiveness, trust, and acceptance. I want to see that the wife is able to forgive. There's going to be strong emotions and difficult thoughts that make it really hard for her to forgive at the early stages. And she's going to feel challenged to forgive him. And yet there's hurt and anger and confusion that can often morph into bitterness. And I think the antidote to bitterness is actually forgiveness. But I, you know, the caveat to this is I want to recognize the fact that forgiveness is not just a decision, a conscious decision in any one moment, it's a process. And we've got to recognize that it takes time for her to work towards that forgiveness. But if she's a Christian, she has no choice. She has to get to a place where she's willing to forgive him. But he also can't rush it. Because what I've seen a lot of times is this obligatory forgiveness is stated early on, and yet her heart's not really behind it yet. We want to give her a chance to express that forgiveness, but only do that when she's ready to, when she's really interacted with it in a way that shows it's, it's flowing from her heart. But we also don't want her to take forever because the, the longer she takes, the more the condemnation hovers over her spouse's head. So to state forgiveness as a goal to be obtained at least later on in the process is just really important. But I also want to know that restoring trust is possible too. When pornography addictions occur, trust has been damaged. I want to help the wife early on to see that trust can be restored. Is sexual sin secretive and because of the lying, his character witness is shot. So his words are going to matter very little after the pornography addictions revealed. And his actions have to then speak louder than his words. I think one of the quickest ways for a husband to recover trust is to begin to do the hard work of doing that by showing by what he does, by through his actions, that he's willing to reestablish trust. At this point, we risk a husband potentially being a Pharisee. And how do you know the difference? He can put on a religious show if he wants in order to simply recover his wife's trust. But eventually the bad fruit will consistently show itself to show that he's not a believer, if, if that's the case, like Luke 6, 43 to 45 one place we can look to see this. But there's so much anger and confusion, fear going on, it won't be surprising to see him either balk at the things that we're asking of him or to fight to restore the trust. And so at some early point, I might even ask the wife, what does reestablishing trust look like? And that's just simply asking her to trace out what specific steps of repentance looked like. You know, one of the first times I did counseling with a couple who was struggling with pornography, the husband had been looking at pornography on a laptop alone in their bedroom because he tuned in to his computer to look at the news every morning, and yet he was then stumbling on pornography. So a simple practical step she suggested was anytime he gets on his laptop, she wants him to do it at the dining room table in the middle of the most trafficked area of the house with the laptop visible to everyone who's walking by. That was a very practical, logical, transparent step that he could take that would show, if he's willing to do that, that he's willing to begin to show in his actions, not just his words, that he's willing to pursue repentance with his wife. And just to say, forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. A wife can forgive a husband early on, 
but trust can still need to be restored over the course of the marriage. And the last thing I just want to say, that last part of the high level quickly is just uh, acceptance. The danger of the rebuilding the trust is that you put your husband through a trial period where the spouse has to live up to certain things. So wife can think if he's good enough, I'll take him back. But just that, that's just no way to rebuild a marriage. Forgiveness means she's willing to bear the liability of foolishness that he committed against her. And acceptance means she's willing to give him a chance and start rebuilding the relationship, though she's not ready to trust him yet. She needs to walk by faith and not by sight. And early on, it's so easy to walk by sight and not by faith. To try and pursue all the evidences of repentance and, and see him prove himself and make sure he does all the right things, where in the end, in order for their marriage to survive, she's got to trust the Lord. Well, I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest on the Hope and Help Project to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is currently addicted to pornography. They know it's something they shouldn't be involved with, but they feel like it's so deeply ingrained into their habits and desires that they will never truly become free from its grip. What would you say to this person to give them the courage they need to fight for their purity with the power Jesus Christ supplies? Well, you probably feel hopeless right now, but know this, change is possible. God is bigger than your porn struggles. So you don't have to give up and you don't have to give in. God can change you. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And in the end, you'll find out that sin does not have to have the upper hand. Right now, you can feel like sin is winning, that sin has victory in your life. But in the end, you're going to see that Christ does. I've seen people changed by the power of the gospel. I've had the privilege of sitting in the front row and watching people's lives transform. And if God can transform their life, he can also do it for you. Well, thank you so much for sharing those encouragements with the audience today. If you are listening to this episode and you want to learn more about Deepak's ministry and some of his writing and resources that he has available, please scroll down to the link in the show notes. I want to thank you, Deepak, for joining us today on the show. This was a really insightful and profound conversation, in my opinion, about a topic that really just seems to linger off into the shadows that you took the time to write this devotional for the purposes of helping people with the power of the gospel. And so I'm just so thankful that you were available to come on the show today. Really glad to do it. Privileged to have the time with you today, Christine. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Deepak's books and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.